Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Diane Grand, a clinical psychologist in private practice in the western suburbs of Chicago. She has worked with individuals, couples, and families for over 30 years. One of Dr. Grand's special interests has been the improvement of relationships, including those of life partners, family members, coworkers, and friends. In addition to providing therapy, Dr. Grand publishes articles on mental health topics for Choosing Therapy website. In addition to providing therapy, Dr. Grand publishes articles on mental health topics for the Choosing Therapy website. She also writes monthly blogs on various topics including communication skills, emotional vulnerability and connection, self-esteem, and expectations in marriage. Her blog, titled In It Together, is published on Psychology Today's website. Diane, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to have this conversation with you. I am too. I'm really excited about this topic, how to stop taking too much responsibility for others. I think it's a topic area that a lot of people can relate to and really benefit from. And so we're going to do a deep dive on your interest and expertise in this area. And hopefully it'll be helpful for people. And I'm sure it will. Sounds good. And yeah. And before we get started in that, though, I'd like to spend a few minutes getting to know you a little bit more as a person sort of how you got into this field and your interest in psychology and also your interest in this area of taking responsibility for others, sort of how you got interested in that topic. So let's start with that. Okay. I've had a long-term interest in connections between body and mind. So our, our physical health and our health habits and how those influence our mental well-being and our emotional well-being. And that led me to start out by studying biology as an undergrad in college. But coming out of college, my first job opportunity was in a research lab in Texas studying fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, mm. which at that point we called fetal alcohol syndrome. And it was just fascinating to me to see how many effects there were for the infant. Of course, we didn't use human beings for the study. We used rhesus monkeys. But, but we look at the effects on the infant monkeys of their mother's use of alcohol during the pregnancy. And it struck me that these innocent infants were born with limitations that usually last a lifetime. Yeah and uh, to no fault of their own. So I started wondering how that might be prevented. And I thought the way to prevent that is in a practical way through behavior change. And the only way to, to become skilled at behavior change was to study psychology. So that led me to psychology programs. You got the human psychologies through monkeys. Yeah, yeah, through animals. Kind of indirectly, but I'm glad it happened. I'm glad it happened that way. So you're interested in this idea of human connections and this idea of taking too much responsibility for others. How did you sort of gravitate into that aspect of your psychology practice? Yeah, that developed because so many of my clients over the years seem to be caught up in behavior 
that was trying to take care of someone else and usually doing so to an extreme, taking care of either children who were teens or young adults, spouses who were capable of taking care of themselves, sometimes coworkers. There were just so many instances of that that I started paying more attention to how to help clients overcome that. I, I didn't see it as helpful for them or the other person. Yeah, and we're going to get into the dynamics of that a little bit later on in the interview. I'm really interested in hearing how that plays out in people's lives. And I'm wondering if we can start with just defining a few terms, because I know in some of your writings, you talk about this term rescuer, enabler, caretaker. Are those just sort of interchangeable or do they mean like slightly different things? For me, they're more or less interchangeable. I use all the terms because they might have different implications for listeners. Because, for example, caretaker, it's more easy to think of in terms of a relationship where the other person might have an illness or a physical disability. And you literally can get caught up in taking care of that person sometimes more than you need to. The rescuer might be someone who saves someone from bad habits, who's perfectly healthy except for their bad habits or compulsions. The enabler is the classic term that I'm taking from Melanie Beatty's work, Codependent No More, where the habit tends to turn into behavior that enables someone else to abuse alcohol or other substances. So you're enabling their addiction. I use all three terms. Yeah. So they all, in one way or another, have to do with getting over-involved with somebody else in a way that's probably not healthy for them and probably not good for the person either. Right. And they just maybe have different connotations with which term you use, but they sound sort of, they're they're sort of similar in that common factor. Yes. So Diane, um, let's talk about some specific ways in which you might see in a relationship in which that person, the enabler, rescuer, caretaker might show up in the dynamic. Could you give us some ideas about like what that might look like? What do they do? Sure. There's probably at least eight ways I can think of, but one would be just agreeing to do things that you don't really want to do. That comes up pretty often in workplaces where one person might have a stronger sense of responsibility, or they might even be more competent. And so they take on the co-workers' tasks when they really don't need to. There's sometimes taking on the other responsibilities that no one's even asked you to, but maybe you do it to be liked or to be appreciated. Sometimes more often in a family, but this could happen at workplace too, just trying to make sure everybody else feels okay, that everybody else is happy. I see that a little bit more in families yeah. um, where one member of the family tries to make sure, for example, everybody's having a good time at a family celebration when it's not really their responsibility to do that. So let's back up a second before we move on to the others. So the first two examples, and those look like they would be very applicable to something like a work situation. The person is taking on a larger portion of the work than maybe other people are. And you said sometimes it might even be because they 
at least they believe they're better at doing that kind of work or they're more skilled at it. And why does that happen for that person in that situation, say a work situation? Why is it that you think that they're jumping in and either doing it because people are implicitly asking them to, or they take on the responsibility themselves? It seems to me it's mostly a need to be appreciated or be liked, be valued and concerned sometimes that if they don't do what's asked, other people will be angry with them. There are different motives for that, but most often that's what I see, wanting to be liked, wanting to be valued, and not wanting to get other people disappointed or angry by saying no. In that case, sometimes I work with them on assertiveness skills and learning more assertive types of communication. Okay. So there's a big social component there to how am I fitting into this work dynamic and feeling like people are appreciating and liking and valuing me being there. And that drives them to kind of overcompensate with what they're taking on. And you mentioned the the second one you mentioned with another one about making sure that everybody feels okay. There might be like a family party or a get together. And it almost sounds like you're talking about taking responsibility for their emotional well-being. Yes. Just trying to make sure everybody's happy. Everybody's enjoying themselves. And if anybody in group acts out, which happens pretty often in a large family gathering, that person might feel responsible for whatever disagreements resulted even though, of course, they're not responsible. Yeah. Well, so what's going on with that one when somebody is sort of taking responsibility for the emotional well-being of, say, family members and in that kind of setting? What's the kind of driving psychological factor going on there? Sometimes with those individuals, it's more a need to be in an environment that feels safe, peaceful. There's no arguments. They just feel more at ease themselves if that's the environment. And what they are not realizing is there are other ways for them to create comfort for themselves without taking responsibility for others. Like they could walk away for 10 minutes, take a break. For some, that's hard to do, or they just haven't learned to do it. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. So just sort of a general discomfort with strong, powerful emotions in the environment leads that person to want to kind of regulate how other people are feeling. And mm-hmm. I, I imagine the work you do with them must that must really focus on like, how do you kind of manage and regulate your own feelings in a an environment that yeah. you don't have a lot of control over and what's going on with everybody else? Yes, yes. So we, we work on self-calming skills, relaxation exercises. Hopefully they've already got some of those that they've used in other contexts, but if not, we can just start from scratch and learn some of those. Well, let's hear about some others. What are other ways in which a person might show up with this need to take care of other people's emotions? I see people, very often parents with older teens or young adults who try to take the consequences of that young adult's problems. For example, if they have a young adult child who's accrued debt because of either bad habits then they will try to pay off the debt for that child, thinking they're, they're helping them out in life and giving them kind of an equal standing with their peers. But actually, they're probably setting them back if they do that repeatedly, because then that person doesn't learn 
their own money management better or doesn't overcome bad habits that are creating the debt. For example, I had one family as clients where there was a young adult who had a gambling habit. Online gambling has become easy to do. Yeah. And um, I can go into more of the consequences of that later. But the one consequence that I'm referring to here is that sometimes parents would actually help him pay off the gambling debts, uh-huh. which you can imagine is <laughs> not a good idea. Right. Talk about sort of enabling, right? Like, oh, the the financial tap is on, so I might as well just gamble however yeah. much I want to because somebody else is going to pay my debt for me. Right. right. In this particular situation, Diane, when you say somebody is taking responsibility for the consequences of other people, it's usually like a bad consequence, right? Somebody has a problem or gets into trouble, and then the enabling person comes in and just takes care of it. And then that person is just like, well, I didn't learn anything here. Right, exactly. And sometimes the bad consequence is really just sort of a lack of motivation, which can come from the other person being depressed. I'm thinking of another family I've worked with where the husband had a series of serious surgeries, so had a lot of physical limits. And the wife would just do too much for him, even though his own physical therapist said he can do this, you know, under these circumstances, he's safe to do this. And he's better off doing this because he'll rebuild his own strength and his own flexibility. But she would still pretty much insist on doing it for him. It's so many different circumstances in which people could get caught up in this behavior. Yeah, I think that's a perfect example, because in that particular case, the person is literally doing the walking and lifting and whatnot for the person who needs to build up their physical strength. Yes. She would ask him, for example, did he want a glass of water? And if he said she would bring him the water, whereas he had been told by the therapist, you're capable of getting yourself to the kitchen and getting some water. So she wasn't helping him. Does this similar to, I think you were starting to talk earlier before about people speaking on behalf of other people. It's kind of a similar kind of thing, right? I see that sometimes in family sessions where I'll ask how one person is doing or what's been happening for them that past week. And another family member, usually a parent or sometimes an older sibling will pipe up and say, well, this is what she's been doing. And so I have to ask them to hold off and let that individual answer for themselves. I I don't think that comes out of any bad intent. I think they're feeling sort of protective, thinking that they're helping the first person get their words out. No. So yeah, that sounds a bit like kind of vaguely in the realm of like the rescuer. Like I see my sibling or my child is maybe feeling anxious or stressed out, being put on the spot, having to answer something. So I'm just going to answer for them and relieve them of that. Yes. People don't usually come to me with that as a problem because if they're doing that, they don't normally see a direct consequence of that, but it plays out in sessions. A really common problem that's related to this is when a person doesn't ask for what they need or what they want. So we'll end up saying yes to requests instead of saying, you know, I'd like to do that for you, but I really need that time 
to myself or love to help you out there, but I had this other priority that I've already committed to. It's very difficult for some to set those boundaries. I think it's a related problem where you're trying too hard to rescue that person from their situation instead of focusing first on what are your priorities and needs or wants. In this kind of situation, is it typical that the enabling caretaking person is stepping in to take responsibility for somebody else and not being asked, but just sort of ignoring their own needs or priorities? Or is it the other way around that they're usually being asked and they have a hard time setting the boundary and saying no? Yeah, yeah, this was an example of how often the person is asked and it's just difficult for them to say no. Another common example of that, some clients who are parents of school-age children, the children are involved in sports groups or band camp or whatever activity, and other parents ask, will you be on this committee? <laughs> will, will, you, will you even be the head of this committee? Yeah. And, I, and my clients have at times agreed to do that and then find themselves spending hours, hours and hours each week with those responsibilities that they didn't ever really wish to take on. But now they're sort of stuck with it and feeling resentful about it, which takes yeah. us to, to the, the cycle that can develop. Yeah. And let's move right into that in a moment. But I just want to say anybody who's been a parent can relate to that issue of just having way too many requests from everything, whether it's the music or the sports or extracurricular activities or even things having to do with school. And there's just way more things to do than anybody has any actual time to do. And so, right, that's a tough one for people to be able to recognize and and understand their priorities. It is. I tend to coach them to lay out their priorities, even if it has to be written out on paper. Right. So let's get into this um, dynamic, the rescuer, victim, persecutor dynamic. We've talked a little bit about that already, but maybe we could just sort of lay it out really just directly and clearly. So what goes on there? Sure. What I think is fascinating about that is that how many times individuals fall into a role and they repeatedly fit into that role, like a common rescuer or a victim or what I call the perpetrator. But it also is not unusual for one person to cycle through all three roles. Hmm. And this is dynamic that Melanie Beatty talked about. It's really the one that I think we have to be more careful of because it's so easy to cycle through those roles and not even realize that it's happening. Yeah. So I could give you an example of that. Please do. I'll go back to that family I mentioned earlier where there's a mother with an adult son who has a gambling addiction, really, because she knows that this is a problem for him causing debt and inability to save money. She's actually checks on his bank account balance, which I don't know how her name is on it because he's an adult, but we'll check on his bank account balance and then report back to him, you're minus X amount of dollars. What are you doing? So 
checking in is the rescuing. I got to find out what's going on here. Then becoming critical of why are you doing this? You shouldn't be gambling. You should be saving, which comes across, of course, as very critical. I call that the perpetrator role because now you're criticizing, finding fault, and trying to change someone else's behavior. Then, of course, the adult son basically says, it's not your business. Leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. And then the mother slash rescuer feels herself victimized because here she's trying to help and he's not appreciating it. And that cycle can go different ways. It can start with rescuing, feeling like a victim when the person you tried to rescue doesn't appreciate it, and then becoming the perpetrator and getting angry about that. So it it cycles in different directions, but it's a cycle that is easy to get caught up in. Nobody likes to be the helpless victim. That's not a fun place to be psychologically or emotionally, right? Right. Absolutely. Especially young adults. They want to have a sense of competence and and want to know that other people believe in them. So being questioned and challenged is usually not helpful. Not in that way, not in a critical way. Yeah. So they're feeling helpless and inadequate, and then they're feeling resentful toward the person who's rescuing them. And how does the cycle sort of continue? I'm assuming like in this dynamic, it, it sort of perpetuates itself. Yeah. That person, do they fight back or do they give in? Like how, how does it sort of kind of continue until like some intervention happens? It's sort of incredible how it just keeps going with each new incident until someone becomes aware of what's happening and makes an effort to change it. But I see it happening time after time with maybe slightly different problems or different circumstances, but the same dynamic continues. And you made a good point. The person who's seen as the victim, like in this case, the person with the gambling habit, they do not want to be perceived as incapable of handling their own affairs. Often there's already a long-term self-esteem problem which might have even set them up for the addictive behavior in the first place. It makes that person even more at a disadvantage to overcome their problems, which means they're likely to do the same thing again. And then the person in the rescuer role is likely to catch it again and criticize again. It's rarely something that's appreciated. So the person with the bad habit, bad behavior, either gets outwardly angry or gets passive aggressive. And then the rescuer feels like now they are the victim because now they're being hurt. It just continues until somebody realizes what's going on and makes a conscious decision to change it. Yeah, we actually had an episode on passive aggression and the silent treatment several episodes ago with Dr. Bernie Golden. So that we kind of talked a bit about that dynamic and it's very interesting. But I like what you're saying it's it's interesting so the person who is the recipient of the help is resentful and feeling a bit helpless and they're getting this help and so they're resentful and they're also feeling like 
I can't do this on my own. So they continue to receive the assistance and feel more and more resentful about it. Mm-hmm. And I can see how that could be a very toxic dynamic, toxic cycle. Because the, the more they're caught up in their behavior, which is causing problems for them, the more they actually becoming dependent. Yeah. And the case that I'm thinking of had to live with that parent until things could get straightened out because you're just actually continuing and worsening the dependency there. I'm wondering about this concept of like what people call tough love, especially when it comes to kids that are in come into this dependent role, which for sure is enabled and perpetuated by the parents as well. But that's hard for people, like, especially with parents, it's hard to sort of like, tell your adult child, get your act together, or else there's going to be some kind of a consequence. That's hard for parents, because no parents want to feel like they're punishing their child and even putting them in a situation where they might be homeless. That's at least what's going on in their head. Yes. So how do you counsel parents on having to make those tough changes and being worried about what might happen to their kids? That is really difficult. It's sometimes heartbreaking because you you do see how agonized the parents feel about their fears of what will happen to that child if they don't help. Like you mentioned, I've seen parents with adult children for whom there is a risk that they would be homeless or end up back in jail more than once or other circumstances no one wants to see their child in. To work through that, I usually work it through gradually. I start by suggesting simple behavioral contracts between that adult parent and the adult child or older teens as well. Contracts where you agree to do this and the other person agrees to do that and laying out the consequences, trying to keep it all at an emotionally calm level and being very clear about what both parties agree to. So that ultimately, worst case, if the worst consequences happen, at least the parent knows I did everything I could. Mm. I was fair. I was reasonable. I kind of laid out the options. I gave them a choice. Whereas I, I think it's tougher if they try to take this attitude suddenly and say, okay, if you don't do this by next month, you're out of here. That's it would be hard for a parent to live with having done that. But I, usually when you lay it out slowly and show them how it can be done gradually, they're okay with it. You gave one example about sort of making lists and defining whose responsibilities are what. So how is that helpful? Give us an example of what that might look like. Okay. The child who's actually an adult child gambling, he might be told because of your habit, you're becoming too dependent on us and we don't want to see that happen to you. So we'd like to help you set up a plan to gain financial independence. Of course, the underlying problem is still a gambling addiction, but you can't tell someone to deal with that. They have to be ready to deal with that. So you can tell your adult child, this is the consequence that we need to change. We can give you, let's say, three months or six months, whatever is workable for that family. And we expect, for example, that you're saving this much 
each month. You're taking care of your own expenses in these areas, or you're getting yourself to and from work, or whatever it is that you think is reasonable for your context, but, but laying out what you expect of them and then laying out the limits of what they can expect of you, such as, you know, we can cover your room and board while you recover, but we're not giving you spending money or we're not covering miscellaneous expenses. You, you'll have to find a way to do that for yourself. I'm using all examples of just a that one habit, but it can apply to anything else, really. Let's talk a little bit more specifically about the rescuer person and other things that they can do to be more aware of the dynamic and to change it for themselves. I know you've listed a number of those in, in your writings before. What are some other ways in which they can become more aware and try to work on that within themselves? The behavioral steps are pretty straightforward. You can make a list, again, I'm big on lists, of which responsibilities you really believe to be your own. Let's say it's a work environment. What are your work tasks as assigned either in your, your job when you were hired, whatever your current tasks are, and actually write them out then make a separate list of which things you've been asked to do lately, but they're really not your responsibilities. They were never assigned to you by a supervisor, for example. Then try to be aware of how you feel when you find yourself doing those things that you never really were assigned to do. You just ended up doing it somehow, and now you're probably feeling resentful or taken advantage of. Try to increase awareness of what that feels like. Why is the awareness important? Because I think for so many people, it just becomes a habit. It just becomes an automatic thing. They kind of grit their teeth as they're doing this task for someone else, but later think, why did I do that? That wasn't my job. Noting what you feel at the time can help you redirect your behavior. I see. It's sort of like a internal feedback loop. If you pay attention to that, if I'm feeling resentful, if I'm feeling taken advantage of, then maybe it means something's not quite right here and I should pay attention to that. Yes. Yeah. That's a great way to think of it. Noting this isn't quite right. Then of course you'd have to practice not rescuing. So learning to say, no, I can't do that. And that might take learning those assertive communication skills that I mentioned earlier. That's super uncomfortable for people who've never done it before. It is. Sometimes I'm, I'm surprised at how many times that has to be practiced before it becomes easier. Not even easy, but easier. But it can be done. It can be done. I try to keep assertiveness down to a very simple distinction, because most people are afraid they're being aggressive when they're being assertive, particularly women who have been socialized to not be assertive in many cases. So to try to make the distinction between saying what I think or feel or what I would like, that is assertive. But turning it into criticism, anger, blaming, that's aggressive. And they're really totally different. It can feel like you're doing the same thing, but sticking to 
I would like to complete my job on time is assertive. I shouldn't have to do your job is kind of aggressive. So it can be done with practice. If it's family or people that you're in frequent contact with, you can let them know that you're working on this. And that helps because there are so many times when the family members will think, well, you used to do this for me. Why aren't you doing it now? And they might even feel personally offended or like you stopped caring about them. So it helps to explain to them, I'm trying to be more assertive. I think it'll be better for me and for our relationship. Eventually, people can understand that you have good intentions at heart. Yeah, that's a really interesting one, Diane. And this is very true in a lot of dynamics, I think, interpersonal dynamics that people get used to the dynamics and they're familiar with them and it feels comfortable for them, even if they don't really like what's going on. It's it's comfortable. It's what they're used yeah. to. Yes. So when, whenever there's somebody is consciously and actively trying to change that dynamic, there's certainly going to be some discomfort there with other parties involved because they're like, hey, this is unfamiliar for me. What is going on? Right. So true. They can get angry or passive aggressive, or you can get all kinds of reactions. So it helps to prepare them in advance that you're trying some new behaviors. And you could even put it that way as kind of an experiment. I'm trying to act differently because it's not working out well for me. And I think this might work better for me and for us. Yeah. I could really see that in the context of say like marital conflict where, you know, the same (laughs) arguments are happening and the same kinds of conflicts are taking place. And maybe one or both of the, one of the spouses comes and said, Hey, this isn't working great for us. I'm going to try to do this a little bit differently. So be prepared. Yes. That's a great example. I think it helps a lot with couples if you're going to change behavior to give the other person a a heads up on that. There's a whole other approach that I could suggest also. I am trying to remember the authors now, but there were some authors more recently than Cartman and Melanie Beatty who came up with a model that they put out as the alternative to the Cartman triangle. And they called it the empowerment dynamic. You might have heard of that. I wasn't that familiar with it until recently. It's changing the whole dynamic so that instead of being focused on the problem or the anxiety that people are feeling, you focus on a better outcome for everyone. To be more specific, you shift role. Instead of being the rescuer, you try to shift into becoming a coach, which if you think of it, a good coach believes in the ability of the people he's coaching or she supports them, points out maybe their strengths. And I believe in you, you can do this. So instead of criticizing, like you haven't fixed this problem yet, it's, I know you can fix this problem. So the coach is totally different mindset. The other position is the victim can shift. This is tougher. I find this one really difficult because too often People in the victim mode have been in that mode for a long time, and they have to try hard to shift out of that, realize they don't have to be a victim. And instead, according to this model, they can try to think of themselves as a creator. So the victim becomes the creator in which they 
try to accept the idea that they choose their own responses to what other people do. They choose their own behaviors, their own habits, and they, they learn. So things have gone wrong in the past, but I don't have to be a victim of that. I can learn from that and move on and make things better. Then the third role, the persecutor. I find this one interesting because I find myself doing this a lot as a, as a therapist is shifting into the challenger. The challenger wouldn't criticize or condemn, but they would accept the reality of what's going on now, maybe more thoroughly than the coach would. Here's the good, here's the bad, but what can you learn from this? Sort of challenging people with questions. So instead of focusing on the flaws, just how can you learn and how can you, how can you make this better for yourself? Assuming the victim can shift into the creator, that's a nice combination there. Yeah. So I really think that's a nice model. There are visual models of this. If you went online and looked up the empowerment dynamic, it shows you the, the triangle of the Cartman triangle. And then the mirror image is the empowerment dynamic as a triangle. Back to the coaching role, I'm assuming what this sort of means is you typically played the role of enabler, for example, in a relationship, and you say to yourself, yeah. I'm not going to come in and fix or take care of this person and their problem this time. But instead right. of doing nothing, I'm going to show up and try to help them figure out what they could do to make the situation better, sort of be in that empowering role without taking over, taking charge. If you think of it as a, a therapy point of view, and you're familiar with Rogerian therapy, client-centered therapy, it's really believing in the potential of that person to be their best self, allowing them to learn, allowing their strengths to unfold, and showing your faith in them to be the best version of themselves. I think that that also can be part of the therapy process, or the therapist can act as the coach. I think that plays out a lot in parent-child dynamics, because obviously children are struggling to learn how to do different and new things as they grow up and they mature. And part of the role of a parent is to help the child learn how to cope and deal with new things that come up in his or her life without doing yeah. it for them. And yes. so, yeah. you know, the good parenting is like, well, let's talk about this situation that you're encountering for the first time. Yeah. What yes. do you think are ways that you might, well, maybe that's the challenging is the challenging getting them to think about how they might approach it differently. Is that the difference between that and coaching? Yeah, that's how I see it. The challenger is more likely to ask questions and prompt new thoughts and new solutions. So a person can be both and can flip between the two roles, of course. But I think it's put this way because the persecutor role is so harmful that if they can shift a mindset to being a challenger, they can still feel active and helpful but in a way that lets the other person solve their own problem instead of you solving it for them. I see the coach role as a little more passive, just I believe in you, maybe more general statements. I believe in you. I know you can do this. And maybe I'm here for you, yeah. but not quite 
what do you think needs to be done? Or what are the possible solutions? Or what can you learn from this situation? Which is a little, little more challenging than coaching. Maybe the term coach can be misleading because I know, especially these days, coaches can be very active and very challenging. But I'm just thinking of coach is a good alternative to being a rescuer because you're still helping, but you're not seeing the other person as helpless. Well, as a therapist, we can really relate to that because no therapist feels good about telling a patient what to do. And then when they do it, feeling like they get credit for it. But when a therapist helps engage a patient in dialogue and conversation and the lights go off in the patient's head about what they can do differently and empower themselves, then it feels Mm -hmm. really good when you're the Mm -hmm. therapist and you're like, I helped that person figure out how to manage this particular issue on their own. And then they felt really empowered. And so I think that the same could probably be said for other kinds of relationships, a parent-child relationship, a spousal relationship, even a work relationship, a boss with somebody who they supervise. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I like about these concepts. They do generalize to so many different relationships and and not always what we would think of as pathological relationships. So these are basically your typical person you might live with or work with. There's nothing, no harmful intent here. They're just habits people get caught up in and they can learn to change. Well, Diane, this has been a super interesting conversation about people taking responsibility for other people. And I think, again, just shows up all over the place and all sorts of relationships. So hopefully people will sort of see themselves and see their their dynamics with other people from talking about this like we did and, and give some thought to it. I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts that you would like to talk about or mention regarding the subject of taking too much responsibility for others. My final thought is something I, I always like to end a conversation with that this is something people can learn. If you're feeling stuck in any of these roles, just know that behaviors become habits and habits can be unlearned and replaced with better habits. Having that sort of faith in yourself that you can change what's not working for you can make a huge difference. Diane, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure having you. Oh, thank you. Pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.